The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts, oh let the ancient words impart. Philippians chapter 1, uh, we began our study in this great book a few weeks ago, probably three weeks ago all in total. Of course, we skipped a week or two for different reasons, but nonetheless, uh, we're going to rejoin our study there tonight. We'll get down to verse 5. That's pretty much where we're going to be picking up. Uh, we've already looked at the first four verses. Uh, we'll read them again. However, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, and to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, uh, and always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. Then verse 5, for our fellowship in the gospel from the first day and even until now. So just backing up and tying a few things back together. Remember, as we were looking at basically the thought process starting there in verse about two or three, depending on how which of those outlines, and by the way, I've got I actually don't have any outlines tonight, but they're available. I've got one or two up here, just a couple of copies, uh, but they're on the website as well. And if you need one, you can get with me. But uh, looking back in verse two, when he said, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father, we've already made mention of what the grace that is being understood here can be. Uh, possibly we generally define that as an unmerited favor of God. Um, as a matter of fact, we're going to see it a little bit later as we get farther into the text. The word grace here that is used, uh, the Greek word looks to be something like charas, something like that. Really carries with the idea of not only favor, but thankfulness. And a thankfulness that we are given because God shows us favor. And so we'll see that word develop a little bit more into this. But he says grace and peace from God our Father. So that's the first relationship right there. Obviously, that relationship, God being our Father, is the most intimate description of what we would have as far as God and our relationship to Him. He's so many other things in that, and He's defined in so many other ways throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. Time and time again, He's referred to in different ways, but the fact that we have the ability to call Him Father is a blessing within itself. And Paul says in this that he knows and understands that both grace, which must precede peace, but grace and peace are available uh, through God our Father and coupled with that, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've said many times how specific that is, that any time, and Paul uses the tool over and over throughout his letters, but any time Paul emphasizes God and the Lord Jesus Christ in that type of a context, that was somewhat of a, a shocker to the Jews and to their understanding and especially what they were willing to accept. Now, they had the most uh, complete, if you want to call it that, education in Scripture of, of any group at the time, even in first century times. Their background and all they knew about the old law and all they knew about the prophets, they should have understood, but they were often in denial of such. But when Paul says that he's seeing these things coming from both God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the word and right there, we understand it. We would call it in English a coordinating conjunction. 
Uh, that's probably a lot easier to say than what the Greek terms for that are. But basically, it means these two things from what that perspective are absolutely equal. Meaning that anywhere that you find grace or anywhere that you find peace, you can point a finger at, at both of these personalities, the Godhead. Of course, we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in that. But pointing directly at those two portions of the Godhead, they are of equal blame for such. And uh, we get what we get from both equally. And of course, if it were not for Jesus Christ and His coming, then we ourselves would, would still be in dire straits as far as sins being remitted. And so Him coming offered us that opportunity nonetheless. And He said in verse 3 again, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And I may have mentioned, I think I did actually, to start watching for, this is the first time you see it, but start watching for that very simple pronoun, whatever you call that. Is that a pronoun? I don't know. The word I, nonetheless. Start watching for that because Paul is going to use that approximately 65 times in 45 different verses. And as he does that, of course, he's not being prideful in that, but he does, as an apostle, he does have the authority to call upon himself and particularly, he's trying to show these brethren, remember this is probably one of the most intimate letters that he writes. Of course, when he wrote to Philemon, we studied a quarter or two ago, he's writing to a personal uh, relationship there because he's writing to an individual. But uh, he's writing here to a church that he loved. And so when he brings up the, the word I over and over again, He's not pointing at himself to gain attention. He's just letting them know that everything that I'm, I'm relaying to you, even though it's inspired, it's the way I feel. And so there's some personal relationship there that backs that up. But he said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And that word remembrance in the context that it's in can go one or two ways. In the one way, it could go from a subjective sense, and that says about Paul that every time I think about you, every time you come to mind, uh, I'm thankful for you. And that doesn't necessarily give any specifics. That's very general. And as I may have said on last week, I would hope that it's the case for all of us as Christians that if someone looks to us, particularly fellow Christians inside of four walls like this, but even in the world, that someone could point to us and say, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for, for who you are and for what you are and for how you live and, and that sort of thing. But this probably more comes into, and this is what we're fixing to develop in five and six, hopefully, this probably more comes in from an objective standpoint where Paul is standing back and thinking more specifically to say, Every time I remember what you've done for me, I'm thankful for you. And he's going to mention that a couple more times throughout the book, three more times, as a matter of fact, total, or three times total, uh, the fact that they gave gifts to him, that they gave offerings to him, and that they were the ones, this group, not exclusively, but uh, they gave the majority of support, whether that be financial support or just encouragement or spiritual support or whatever, this congregation as a whole was responsible for a lot of the support that Paul had and a lot of what he was able to do. And so you and I are looking back even now, and of course we probably don't think this specifically, but the more I look into this book and look into it week after week for myself, I'm mindful of how much this congregation, the brethren at Philippi, the church that met at Philippi, really ought to mean to us. 
as far long ago as that was, you know, over 2,000 years ago, when time of writing of this, as far back as that was, you and I, not only we, we give a great debt or ought to owe a great debt toward Paul, but even toward these brethren. Because you've seen it happen before, and this can happen for, for any Christian who lives a faithful life, but you see preachers, you see elders, you see deacons, you see Bible class teachers, you see whomever, especially those who you know, really take more leadership type roles in the church or those who teach or those who uh, preach or something like that. A lot of times the work that they are able to do is a direct result of something that somebody in the back of their lives did who maybe had always gone unnoticed. I think about what, and this is not to be taken literally, but I, it still continues to ring in my mind. Brother Keith Mosier, probably one of the first days or weeks I was at the Memphis School of Preaching, he just, in relaying some of these ideas to us, he said, you know, there are probably preachers all over the country that ought to just about have a statue erected to them for the work that they've done in a community, but yet they're unknown. You know, they're not in all the gospel meetings. They're not on the lectureships. They're not the big names that everybody's wanting to go hear when they're in the area or something like that. These are just hardworking, uh, good-hearted Christians, really, who are doing the work of God. And so when Paul thinks about this congregation and he remembers not just the generalities of them, but the specifics of what they have done for him and what they have meant to his work and continue to mean, even in, in light of what he's going to say in verse 13 about being in bonds, literally in prison, that's huge. And so we ought to thank God upon every remembrance of, of any Christian who came before us, of any faithful Christian who led the way and left a path behind by which we could be encouraged or, or to be helped. And so the brethren at Philippi are similar to that or could be similar seen to that in our lives. So he says, always in every prayer for mine, making requests with joy for the fellowship, verse 5, for the fellowship in the gospel from the first day unto now. And so I think this is where the specifics come in. And I, 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 you've seen me hold it up before. My Bible's completely riddled, hard to read, written all over. And I use a lot of tools for my memory as far as marking my Bible in just a particular way to me. But one of the things I did with verse 4 was I put brackets completely around verse 4. Uh, we would call that in English something like a parenthesis, where Paul is coming along, coming along, verse 1 through 3 says the things that he does. And then it's like in verse 4, he just stops and says, hold up, let me mention that every time I think of you or every time I remember what you've done, I'm very thankful for that. And I mention you in every prayer, is what he's saying. Then in verse 5, he says, for specifically for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day into now. Now, the word fellowship right there comes from a Greek word, koinonia, something like that. And it carries with the idea of a joint participation. It literally, in picture, uh, draws itself out in a couple of ways. One, someone who's walking along hand in hand or arm in arm. That's sort of kind of what the word looks like. Another way to illustrate the word, even to really understand it better, what he's talking about here, is to understand a group of people who get together. And this would have happened more in days past 
without the technology and machinery or whatever, but a group of people who get together, literally go out and, and dig in the mud or dig in the clay, pull those things up, add straw to it, and make bricks. And then instead of taking those bricks and just scattering them everywhere, begin to lay those bricks in one upon the other and aside the other to form something or some kind of structure. Uh, very similar to what you might say, well, the, the Egyptians had the Israelite nation doing, the Hebrew nation doing back then. Yeah, just like that. And he's saying there literally with this word that is chosen here, I am thankful or for your fellowship, that is for the stacking together of those bricks, for the combined efforts that we have together. Now, another way of seeing this word and it may be even a better translation of it right here, is just like that picture, is where we would say, well, this is cooperation. This is not one person's effort, not Paul's effort, uh, not anyone else he's eventually going to name in this letter's effort, but an effort that is put together of all of these people there. That is what he's saying that he is thankful for. And he says it's the fellowship specifically in the gospel, that word gospel, euangelion, the good news of God, the caring about of the good news of God. He said, we've got fellowship. And so if you put all this back together just from this point on, backing all the way up to verse 1 when he opened the letter and said, Paul and Timotheus, there he's naming himself, he's naming Timothy. He said, Paul and Timotheus, who are servants of Jesus Christ, remember that's the doulos, that's the idea of, of slaves, literally those who are bond servants or those who are voluntary servants of Jesus Christ, and then to all the saints. By the way, that's another word you can follow through this book. Look at the word all over and over and over again. He'll use it many, many times. And to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And then we mentioned this when we we're talking about verse 1 which are at Philippi with, specifically that word with, both bishops and deacons. So he started forming a pattern right there saying, I've got me, I've got Timothy, I've got all the saints, and then I've especially got a bond or a work that goes on along beside the bishops and deacons that are in Philippi. And that word with there was, it, it makes up what we might see as a Greek prefix that looks like the letter S-U-N, sun. And the sun is the center of our universe, the bringing together of those things. That's how we would imagine that. And he literally says there, I want you to know that I'm here along with Timothy. I'm working along with you. I'm working specifically along beside your episcopa, that is the bishops, but in a conjoined effort with them, I'm working alongside of your deaconos, that is, those that are conjoined with me in the work. And then he trails himself down to saying, I am thankful for the fellowship that we have in the gospel. And so the work that they do together is a work that is, one, made possible by the gospel, and two, is a continuance of the gospel that would not exist. Now, in the context of what? In the context of the Apostle Paul, again, being in prison and literally in bonds at the time of writing. At that point in time, 
Paul is not only able to do a work himself, which we'll get to. You see the background in it over in Acts chapter 16, the latter half, really chapter 15, bringing you into it, why he got placed into prison. Chapter 16, the latter half, showing you what he accomplished in prison. But in the midst of that effort made possible by the gospel, Paul finds fellowship, even in his bonds. And Paul was... In one sense, and we know why, he's even going to mention this in a little bit, Paul was really essentially unstoppable. Didn't matter where Paul went, didn't matter what situation Paul was in, didn't matter what, what circumstance Paul was in the midst of, Paul found a way to take the fellowship of the gospel and to continue to, to cause that to spread everywhere that he went. And, of course, that would be the case with many of the apostles, many Christians since as well. But Paul seemed to have a special talent, if you will, or was given a special gift to do that because it was in the worst of situations that, generally speaking, Paul would rise to the top and individuals would hear the gospel for the first time and be saved by it. So it's a fellowship that exists in the gospel. And he says that has existed, he says specifically, from the first day until now. So from the first opportunity, you might say that Paul had to, to bring the gospel into the area up into this point, or really from that point, from the first day that Paul came to know the gospel himself as he's made his way into Damascus and was taught it such by Ananias, that has existed. Now notice what he says there in the next part of this, verse 6. He said, being confident of this very thing, that, they, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He said he's confident of that. Now, the word confident there is, is just the way we use it. It's the idea of being absolutely positively sure of something or having assurance. It's very similar to the basis of what we think about when we think about believing in God and having faith in him. Not the same word, but the same idea, the same thought there. The confidence that he had, he says he's confident of, the, of one very thing, that he which began a good work will perform it. Now, the question comes as to when and how and if that work began. Well, obviously. The good work that began in all of these cases, whether it be in the life of Paul, whether it be in the life of these uh, saints that are mentioned above, the bishops, the deacons, himself, Timotheus, any of these people, all of these things began with the gospel, and the gospel itself began in the mind of God. And so what he's saying in verse, verse uh, 6 right here is the effort that God put in in behind what they had of an effort in verse 5. So the fellowship that they had in the gospel, the work that they conjoined together to do in the gospel was made possible by God himself. So he says these things begun or began in that thing, in that place. Now the word began right there, begun. I won't say began. The King James says begun. It's hard to read that in. Uh, but is in what's called the perfect tense. And that implies that it had a specific time of beginning. It had a specific date you could put on it. These things happened and occurred right then and there. 
And of course, they continue on as well. He says, began that good work. Now the work right there that's being done, obviously you could see much of that placed in the efforts of the individuals, the, the work that they're doing, the labor that they're doing and the carrying of the gospel. But really in this context here, the power, which is what the, work, what the word work is, it's the Greek word ergon, the power that is contained right here is a power from God. It's not because any of these people just jumped up one morning and said, well, you know what, I'm going to do all the good in the world. I'm going to help Paul or anybody else who needs help. I'm going to do all these wonderful, awesome things for fellow man, and that within itself is going to cause me to be saved. That's never been it. Never been the case. The work that is being performed right here is a work that is occurring in the lives of men as a result of the work, the ergon, the power that God has. And so it hath begun a good work and will perform it. And of course, performing, carrying the idea that it will be finished. Now, oftentimes we step back, and I don't, I don't deny this application, I'm fixing to make it. But we step back from this verse, particularly when we take verses like this and we pull them out of context maybe somebody's preaching along or teaching along or studying along and they cross this verse and they just hunker down they say well here here's a wonderful verse this will be my theme verse this will be the one i'll put on the sticky note and put on the refrigerator nothing wrong with that this will be the one that I'll, i'll make a screensaver and put it on my phone you know god has begun a good work in me and he'll finish it nothing wrong with such and that's that's absolutely the case the idea of what we might say, you know, God is not finished with me yet. You've heard that or said that. Uh, somebody goes along and, and they're growing in the Christian life and they're getting stronger and they're getting better and that's, that's wonderful and good. And they say, well, you know what? God's not finished with me yet. That's absolutely true. In the context of what's being said right here, as much as that stands true, however, it has to be put in the context of the idea that it's the gospel that's not finished. It's the gospel itself that's not finished with people. Therefore, where does the power lie? It lies in God. The work is in God. And so, yes, God is not finished with us, but it's not a matter of, again, our, our effort, our will, our desire, that must be strong But the only way that can have any basis is by our faith in God and not only our faith in God, but our faith in God that we have gained or have access to through the gospel. And so if God is not finished with me, then God is not finished with me because I'm delving into the gospel and I'm allowing the gospel to grow. Now, one of the ways you can kind of see that bearing itself out, developing a little bit, is not here in chapter 1. It's really across, for me it's flipping one page, but it's really across the page into chapter 2 there, over on the next page in chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what Paul says, and it's a whole discussion that's going to come out, but he starts out in verse 5 and says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so when as the mind of Christ's, continues off these pages into us. And as we begin and continue to have the mind of Christ to grow in us, then that's when progress is made. That's when the good work is continuing to be, from this sense, performed. 
And he says that continues for how long? Until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, different senses, different ideas, depending on whether you're in the Old Testament looking at this type of phrase in the New Testament, the majority, and that's my, my disclaimer, the majority, not all, the majority of times you see in the day of Christ, in the day of Jesus Christ, as this is more specific here, you're talking about the end of this age. You're talking about judgment. You're talking about the end of the Christian age is what is referred to sometimes as we know it. The second coming of Jesus Christ. So he's confident. He's got a definite reliance in the fact and knowing of the fact that the things that God hath begun to do, the good work that he's done, he can continue and we will continue to grow. So when should a Christian, and you know this is a fictitious question, but when and at what point should a Christian stand back and say, well, you know, I've, I've come a long way, I've grown a lot, and I think I've, I've, I've gotten right where I need to be as a child of God's. Never. Ever. The idea is there, God's not finished with me because I'm not finished with Him. So long as I'm coming back to God and His Word, then my growth process should not and would not end. Verse 7, he says, Even as it, is, as it is meet for me to think of this of you all, because I have you in my heart, insomuch as in my bonds, and then in defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace. So even as it is meet for me, has anybody got another translation in front of you? I know some of you got digital stuff, so you got access, but something different than the word meet? Maybe not. The word meet right there carries the, the idea of something that where you might say it's my right or it's what I know. Paul's basically saying here, even as it is my right for me to think of you, I can think of you if I desire, because guess what? Preceding verses, you've given me plenty to think about. you give me plenty of reason to be grateful, plenty of reason to pray, plenty of reasons to petition on your behalf. He said, it is my right for me to think of you all. Now, there's that phrase again, or that word, you all. He's thinking of you all all. So again, this is one of those letters which is in some sense is very intimate, very personal, but it's the same idea. It's generalized to an extent, probably more than any of his other letters, even though others are written to whole churches. This is a letter where he comes back again and again, and anyone who picks this up ought to be able to look into that and say, you know, my name could go there. This, this could have been written to me. This could have been written to, to, to anybody because it continues to use the word all, the sense of togetherness. So this letter, you know, you have to say over and over, the book of Philippians is about joy and rejoicing, but it's about joy and rejoicing that can be a, can be a part of all of our lives because he's already used so many words, the word all several times, obviously. He's used the word or using the right here, the phrase of you all. He's already used words like fellowship, and he's going to use another word in just a moment that's very important to showing the togetherness or the combined efforts of all these people. So even as meet for you all, because I, he says, 
have you in my heart. They're all in his heart. Because he makes your members for them all. So again, I think about, you know, how you, you take this reading, this letter, if, you, if they were reading it then, of course, they're, they're not getting full grasp probably of exactly how the inspiration of God is working by that point. I don't know. But they're reading this letter and they're saying, well, the Apostle Paul said, he appreciates me. The Apostle Paul said he thinks of me. The Apostle Paul says we work together. The Apostle Paul says that he, he is always praying for me. That's pretty good. How much more blessed could anyone be? He says, even as meat for me to you all, because I have you in my heart, in so much both in my bonds and in the defense, and confirmation of the gospel. He said, it's in my bonds. And again, I've got an error drawn from verse 7 over here to verse 13. He's in prison. Even though I'm in prison, this is what's on my mind. Now, we all know the background, the backlog story again of this found in the latter part of Acts 16. Paul's in an awful place. Paul's in a terrible place. Paul's in a place, uh, I like the way Michael Shepard said, uh, years ago, I heard him preach a sermon. He said, in the midst of snakes and spiders and all kind of creatures. And, you know, sitting there in his possibly in, in you know, the remnants of maggot-eating food in his own feces. And Paul and Silas at that point, they're the two, two sitting in that floor doing what? Singing praise to God. That's how this, this whole idea really comes to complete fruition. Now, he had already been in. He had already taught. He had already been with the brethren at Philippi to an extent, or at least uh, in the, the beginnings of the church there. But when he found himself in prison, he was able to be thankful. He said it's in his bonds and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Now, how is it that Paul being in prison makes a defense for the gospel? How is it that Paul being in prison is a confirmation the gospel is true? Yeah, I mean, there comes a point in most people's lives. Now, he he, was, he even says about himself, you know, he may be he may be a little crazy, but if he is, he's crazy for God. But there comes a point in most people's lives if they're actually living something out that's not true or that's a lie, where they finally just stand back and say, "Well, you know, I take that back." You know that yeah, I know I keep saying Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. And this is kind of the, uh, the idea of all the witnesses of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through about 6. But there comes a point where you would stand back and say, well, you know, I kind of, I, I made that up. I heard that somewhere, but that may not be right. You know, if, if I'm going to be in prison for this, Jesus might not have been who he said he was going to be. Or if I'm going to die, eventually Paul would. If I'm going to have to die over this, you know, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I just don't want to talk about that anymore. Paul keeps coming back. And so by him being in bonds, that within itself was a defense to the gospel because anybody could stand back and say, well, you know, I know sometimes, and I'm talking like a person in Philippi, maybe talking to a neighbor, you know, I know sometimes this doesn't make a lot of sense and all, but, you know, Paul, Paul's in prison right now. And Paul's in the most awful situation that a man could be in. And he just keeps on talking about it. He just keeps pressing and things keep happening. 
It's part of the confirmation. Yes, sir. He was cast in prison for uh, casting out the, the demon and that lady that followed him and pestered him to death. Yep. Uh, tried, tried to get her to do something for her. And then the, the miracle that was performed, uh, he was in the innermost parts of that uh, prison. And by the earthquake freeing him and uh, him just staying there. Yeah. And then well, he was able to defend the gospel then and had that miracle there to reinforce what he was saying. That's exactly right. Everything that Paul had done and was doing, you know, in this current situation in prison was continue and confirm such of that. Have you noticed the people that he was actually talking to in Philippi and what their rank was in society? I mean, the women in that age uh, were second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. All right, that's the first group that he spoke to was the, the, the group of, that was praying on the street bank. And then the next group he taught was prisoners. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't see him teaching anybody of any type of notoriety or anything. It was the poor people that he went to. And after out of prison, he went back to Lydia's house to meet with those saints there. And then they were trying to get him to slip out, out of the country. But he did uh, leave and go on to... Uh, Forever. Yeah, well, Paul, as he's saying, Paul, Paul was not selective in, in just trying to teach his favorites or just trying to pick one group or another. Now, would he teach or try to preach the kings? And uh, Yes, when he got before them, he took opportunity. But he also was willing to teach even the lowest of society, at least in their minds at the time. So, yeah, it was a defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then watch what he does again. He says, ye all, that's our English word, y'all. He said, ye all are, there's another word, partakers in my grace. You're partakers. He's saying there, similar to the word fellowship above, he's saying that you are a sharer in what I'm able to do. You're a sharer in the efforts to carry the gospel. You're a sharer a co-worker, again, the word we used above, a cooperative or a part of the cooperation in what's happening right here. And so they're taking part in that, even the fact that it results in the grace that he is able to receive. And then he adds there in verse 8, which is very close tied to the defense and confirmation, he said, for God is my record. That is, God could testify and does testify of such of how greatly I long after you all, there's the word all again, in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, the word long right there is where we would, not where we get the word, but it's similar to the idea of someone who's yearning for something. Someone who is the word here, longing for something, or literally someone who's reaching for something. Paul says, I just, I, I can't wait for the day, maybe we would say. God is my record. God knows my heart. He mentioned his heart just above in verse 7. God knows my heart, and I long to see you. Now again, I don't know that we ever have, we could have, but I don't know that we do have the enthusiasm and the zeal and the heart that Paul had, at least in most situations I don't, to where he longed to see the brethren. 
He wanted to be with them. You know, we're living in a time right now where you can tell by the number of empty spots in this room, not everybody's able to be here. And we understand why. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a trying time. It's a, it's a dangerous time. It's all those things. But it's also a time when a lot of people's faiths are being tested of whether or not they long to see anybody. Fellow Christians, and ultimately, unfortunately, where they long to see God. Now, I'm not saying that someone being here or not being here makes that difference, but I'm afraid it's come down to the point where it's easy for us, whether you call it habit or whatever, to where we just, you know what, the, the fellowship, the participation, the cooperation, all words he's already basically used, has begun to, to, to wane. It's begun to fade. It's hard to find that. You know, uh, uh, Coach Stevens has said it many a times, of course, uh, we miss we miss sometimes the, the the singing and the effort in that miss the fellowship meals that sort of thing that that's difficult and Paul said I long for that I long for a time when we can be together and he adds to that and he uses the word or he doesn't use the word the King James English translation used the word I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ that literally means the affections in the the thought and the love and concern and compassion of Jesus Christ, as Christ would. Now, when they referred to the bowels, they referred to it like this, the bowels, the innards. Because in their mind, you have to understand their understanding of the day, in their mind, the emotions, affections, feelings came from the bowels. And if you don't understand that, eat your whole jar of jalapenos right before bed and you'll, you'll begin to wonder if all your feelings don't come from, uh, from that area. Th- they understood it that way. It's his heart. It's the heart. The seat of his affections. In the bowels of Jesus Christ. And we'll pick up next week, group coming in, so we'll pick up next week along about verse 9. Uh, appreciate your attention and your comments and your studies.